This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hello and welcome to episode 84 of the Equalizer podcast. I'm Chelsea Bush. With me is John Halloran. And I'm going to switch things up a little bit this week, and I'm going to start off the podcast with today's FBREF.com stat of the week, and that is because it will it will lead into our discussion, so I thought it would be a good time. And as I said, the FBREF.com stat of the week. This week is every U.S. Women's National Team coach's first cap. I also want to give a shout-out to Keeper Notes for providing us with some of the color commentary for this. So, First cap, Mike Ryan, first U.S. coach, first cap ever, August 1985. It was a 1-0 loss to Italy. That's right. We, we lost our first game. Turned it around pretty quickly. Uh, next is Anson Durance in July 1986. Did a 2-0 win over Canada because the rivalry started early. Uh, first cap in that game was April Heinrichs, who will come to later. Then we have Tony DiCicco, January 1995. A 5-0 win over Australia, featuring a brace by Michelle Akers. Um, then there's Lauren Gregg, who was never actually an, an official head coach. She was just an interim coach after DeChico left. Um, but her, her first campus coach was January 2000 with an 8-1 win over Czech Republic. Um, and that game was pretty notable for the fact that the regular U.S. national team players were on strike. Um, they'd not been offered an upgraded contract by U.S. soccer, so that featured quite a lot of Names you, you don't usually associate with uh, the U.S. Women's National Team, particularly right after that 99 World Cup. Then, as I said, April Heinrichs, February 2000, a 2-3 loss to Norway. Hard hard done by Norway. Was It was a big rival back in the day, maybe not so much now. Greg Ryan, March 2005, a 1-0 win over France. Um, Greg Ryan actually only lost ever lost one game in three years. But that was a 4-0 loss to Brazil in that an infamous 2007 Women's World Cup semifinal that uh, Hope Solo had quite a lot to say about. So, cost him his job. So, that leads us to PS Mundaga, first cap January 2008, featuring the first caps of Ali Krieger and Becky Sauerbrunn. Um, and then, interesting, Jill Ellis's actual first cap as a coach was on October 2012 because she was an interim coach in between Pia and the next coach, it was a 1-1 draw with Germany during the victory tour after the 2012 Olympics. Tom Sarmani, first cap February 2013, featured a brace from Kristen Press in her very first cap, and Julie, at the time, Johnson's first cap as well. It was a 4-1 win over Scotland. Then we have Jill Ellis's actual first cap, I guess you could say, um, a 3-0 win over China in April 2014. And then, of course... We come to Vlatko Andonovsky, November 7th, 2019, 3-2 over Sweden. No first caps, which kind of surprised me, especially given who he had on the bench. But I thought that was – it started to be quite an, quite an emphatic win. Maybe didn't kind of end up that way. But I I liked a lot of what I saw. 
Uh, but I'm going to let, since I've talked for a while, I'm going to let John take it from here for a minute. Yeah, no, it was a good game. Um, obviously went up 3 nothing within, what, I think 31 minutes. And um, had some miscues in the second half. Let Sweden back into the game, finishing 3-2. But uh, overall, a, a really strong offensive performance, I thought. And I thought that we saw some some things out of some players that either we haven't seen in a while um, or some things that uh, were pretty impressive in their own right. You know, obviously, I thought Carly Lloyd had an exceptionally strong game, scoring twice, assisting on the U.S.'s third goal, I think really making sure that her name is front and center in that conversation for the number nine, uh, you know, probably with, with Morgan being out of the 2020 Olympics. And... Um, just a good good game overall on what looked like a pretty miserable night in uh in Columbus. Yeah, I, I thought the US was playing pretty um pretty free flowing, I would say. I think we saw a lot of interchange among the, the really the attacks, particularly the attacking six players. Uh playing with with a lot of freedom and, and part of that I think too is just most most of the time when you switch coaches you get a bit of a bump of especially when you compare it to the Victory Tour games. They were friendlies. They they knew their coaches on their way out. There wasn't I'm not saying they didn't go out there and do their best, but they they were tired. They were still in the middle of the NWSL season. And I think we we just saw a different gear from them. I mean, Sweden Sweden's a great team. They like the U.S. didn't have all of their their key players, but they're ranked number fifth in the world. And to go down three nil at the half was to me pretty surprising. I, I didn't really anticipate it was going to be that kind of a game. And then um, you know they. Took advantage of some uh, some sloppy defense, I would say, a little bit in the second half, um, and got two back and made made a game of it. But it, it for a while looked to me like they were just the U.S. was going to run away with this game. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting too to see what Vlatko does. You know, whether that's later tonight um, when they play Costa Rica, or even in January when they have the the qualifying tournament in terms of changes, because. It looked pretty much the same. I, you know, I suppose you could call what they were playing on uh, on Thursday a four-one-four-one because it did look like the wingers were dropping back a little bit deeper than we had come to see uh, under Ellis. But four-one-four-one and four-three-three um, are basically the same systems of play, especially depending on which third of the field you're in and whether you're in or out of possession. Um, but we did see, I thought, a, a really impressive game too out of Tobin Heath which um, she looked hungry, and that surprised me a little bit just considering how, as you mentioned, how tired the players are coming off a very long combination of the NWSL season plus the World Cup. You know, maybe that's having a new coach coming in and her feeling like she needs to prove herself again, but uh, she played really well. She had uh, two headers that helped set up two of the three goals for the U.S. I thought Rose Lavelle had a really nice game in the midfield, dancing through, breaking lines, um, creating a lot of chances. She didn't end up on the score sheet, but did a nice job in that creative aspect. And, um, you know, I think you got to wonder whether this is players getting up for a new coach or is this players, you know, finally deciding, okay, it's time to start gearing up for the Olympics um, we know the qualifying's coming in in two months, so it's uh, it was a nice game to watch. And then obviously we have another one coming up tonight. Yeah, so we are recording this before the Costa Rica game, so apologies for not not being able to uh, to talk about that one this week. Um, I, I want to go back to what you said about Roosevelt because I keep every time I see this from her, I think, well, this is what 
if we could just keep Roosevelt healthy, like this is what we could see all the time. Like she, I think gliding is, is the right word. She just, she's so, I haven't seen this from, from really any, I would say any American player who can move. She's almost like she's faster with the ball at her feet. Yeah. And it's like, it's attached to her and in a very Brazilian type of way where they could just play around and, and move. And then the ball goes with her. Um, we, you know, we see a lot of very good ball skills from Tobin Heath, but not at the same speed. Tobin Heath tends to like to stop and think about what she's going to do to get past and then, and then put on a burst of speed. But Roosevelt just seems to be in constant motion and it's really good to watch him. And just, it's, I wish this was the type of players that we could produce, produce more of. I think that's, that's what the U S needs um, to, to find whatever the next level is. They may be at the, the top of the pack right now, but you always want to keep improving yourself. And I think that sort of technical skill and that wanting the ball at their feet, I don't think we see that enough, especially I think from, from youth players is wanting the ball at their feet and feeling comfortable moving with it and interacting with other players and wanting the ball back and then off the ball movement. I think she does all of that very, very well. And, and it just it's a joy to see her when she's healthy because, if, again, we don't see enough of that either, unfortunately. So what did you uh, what did you make of the miscues in the second half? Oh, um, you know, I think that the second one really obviously is the one that stands out. You know, I think that there was a poor clearance from the U.S. So we, they the the players were starting to transition and then got caught out. So you had Casey Short already moving up the field, so she was higher up the pitch, so she wasn't able to get back in time to prevent that entry pass. Then you had. What I can only think is some very poor communication between Sauerbrunn and Nair. Yeah. It, it looked like to me like Sauerbrunn was trying to to shield the Swedish player from the ball and allow Nair to come out for it. Right. And then I think Nair, Nair tripped or slid or something, and then, of course, you just have an open net. And so it was almost a little bit of a of a key sum cop. So it's, I also think it's a little bit dangerous to to not just clear the ball when you have so many Sweden players around and you're on the very edge of the box. It was very – very edge of the point to where Nair could pick it up and not have to play it with her feet. I think it was just, it was playing with fire a little bit and they got, they got burnt for it. Yeah. And I think that's probably if, if there's any knock still on Nair, and obviously I think she answered a lot of questions in the world cup. Um, but I think if there's anything that still people might notice that uh, maybe one of the weaknesses of her game is sometimes she does seem a little hesitant coming off her line, whether that's, you know, in a situation like this or on breakaways, and she certainly was not aggressive or didn't want the ball or thought Sauerbrunn was going to do something different. But that, yeah, was kind of a, one of those comedy of errors uh, type of situations. Yeah. Um, there's one player I kind of thought maybe we'd see a little bit more out of, and I want to get your opinion on it. What did you think of Lindsay Horan's performance? Um, I didn't notice a lot other than she had a really nice turn on the ball to set up, I think it was the first goal. So she she had spun out of trouble and then fed short, who fed press, who then I think laid it in to Lloyd on that first one. Um, and then she did something similar later in the game as well. But other than that, a couple of moments, I didn't, I don't remember seeing her a lot. Um, of course, she did get the yellow, didn't she, as well? Um, yes, I believe so. But, I don't know. I just felt like she took that really bad blow at the end of the NWSL season. And she obviously, I don't think, had the World Cup that everybody thought or even probably she thought she was going to have. Um, but we saw a year ago the level that she could play at. When she's playing at 2018, Lindsay Horan, she's unstoppable. So 
you know, I don't think that this year probably went the way that she was hoping, but I think with a lot of these players taking December off, um, resetting and coming back, um, you know, I, I fully expect that we're going to see her back at the top of her game sooner rather than later. Yeah, I think for me, what's been missing from her game the most, and this is not just the U.S., but even with Thorns, are, are making those late runs for midfield that she was so good at last year, just coming in at the right time to, to clean up any any sort of rebounds and being very aggressive. And I don't know if you know, it could be just a difference in coaching. Maybe she's being told to stay back a little bit deeper and play play more of a defensive role. Um I think that that maybe come, maybe we'll get answers into 2020, but I feel like it's going to go one of two ways. I think that either she just had an absolutely phenomenal year in 2018, and that's maybe we need to adjust our expectations of her norm. And I'm not just talking about about the goal scoring because everyone scores in streaks, and and a lot of that was on set pieces and stuff. And I'm I'm not. It's just she doesn't seem as involved to me. Um, so I think that either we're going to have to adjust our norm, or we're going to get a story later because I, I still wonder if. There's not some sort of of minor knock or, or something going on off the field that we're not aware of because she just doesn't seem as as aggressive. And I'm not talking just like like physically. I mean, obviously she picked up a yellow, but just as as committed. There to me, there's just something lacking, and and maybe she's not enjoying it. I mean, I, I just think that there's something going on. And I saw that again. I was hoping that maybe you know, like I said, new coaches change things. Maybe we would see that from her, and it just. I, I, she's one I feel like that just needs to walk away for for this you know what two month break they get and clear her head and clear whatever's going on whether it's in her head or her body in her life um, and and come back hungry um, in January camp because you know she, she didn't play as much as I think we expected in in the World Cup I think Sam Mewis kind of surpassed her and right now I don't see that even though she got the, the starting nod over Mewis I don't see that changing. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens, but. Again, you know, we saw what she could do in 2018. I'm sure psychologically going through that experience that she went through in France probably took its toll. I mean, I think she, you know, expected to be one of the stars of the team, and she didn't play a lot. And, you you know, that's a that's a pretty, pretty difficult thing. I remember talking to Kristen Press after the 2015 World Cup, and, she had talked about that being the most difficult period of her life because she had been in, in the position to start early in that tournament and then had kind of fallen off as the tournament went on. And then you watch your teammates go on to win the championship and you're not playing a big part in that, or at least the part, the part that you thought you were going to play. And, um, and then she took that blow. I can't even remember. It was right before the last international break. It was right before the last two victory tour games. And I really thought she might be shut down for the season at that point. And she did, she did go on, uh, to play, um, at the end of the NWSL season, but I was, I was a bit surprised because, you know, she was clearly beat up. And I think, uh, you know, as you mentioned, just not the same Haran that we had kind of come to see the year before. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll have to see what, what next year brings. So, um, it's a good time for us to take a break. So we will come back with your second session right after this. Welcome back to the Equalizer podcast. We're here talking about all things U.S. Women's National Team. Um, we just kind of wrapped up the the ins and outs of the U.S. Sweden game, but now let's let's take a look at maybe some of the players, some of the other players we didn't talk about who did play, some of the ones who didn't play. Um, 
I was I was interested to see that he Blacko did dress quite a lot of the the new you know the the non World Cup players you know we started um, Casey Short out on the left we saw Lynn Williams and Andy Sullivan come in in the second half um, didn't see any any debuts but he did have a you know Imani Dorsey was on the bench um, so I don't know John why don't you take it from here what, what were your thoughts on the roster. Um, you know, it was nice to see some fresh faces. I think that's one of the things that kind of gets frustrating when you're going through that victory tour phase, at least as a writer, is that you're looking for fresh angles or a story that hasn't been told 10 times already. Um, and so it's nice to see those people. It's also nice to see some, some club play get rewarded. I think at, at least, especially with Bledsoe, um, who I thought had a, had a strong season and it was nice to see her get rewarded. Um, Casey Short obviously was probably the 24th player, um, you know, heading into the World Cup, probably the last one that, that didn't make the team. So, and she got to be a part of, of a bit of the victory tour as well. So good to see her back. Um, I like seeing Mitch Purse in the team. I thought Purse had a good season. Purse is one of those players that was kind of a bubble player in the summer of 2017 and never quite, uh, got to be a part of it. I think Sullivan's a great player. So it's nice to see that. I think the really interesting thing is is where do we go from here? We have the December identification camp, and then come January, there's probably going to be some switches, right? There's probably going to be some veterans who stop getting called up. There's probably going to be some new faces uh, that, that Andonofsky wants to look at. There's probably going to be some of his former players that he sees something special in that he wants to bring in and take a look at. And um, like I said, from, you know, a uh, position of an observer this is when it gets fun yeah it, it does um yeah i i agree with with everything you said um sullivan i think is one that i'm really interested to see kind of where she goes from here obviously she kind of stormed onto the you know international scene fell off the radar when she had a, a really rough rookie season i think is that it put together quietly a very very strong end of season this year is really kind of made her way back onto the national team and is someone I think that they can, I think they're, they're, they're pretty, I, don't, I think the central midfield is probably where, where they're in need of players the least. Um, but she's someone who, if you decide, and if Flacco decides that maybe Julie Ertz moves back to, to defense at some point, um, which I don't maybe necessarily agree with, but I think it's an option. And I think um, looking at the long term, you're, you're, you really want to figure out who's going to be Abby Dahlkipper's partner, because obviously Becky Sauerbrunn's at the tail end of her career. She's not. She's still great. She's not the best in the world. Um, I don't foresee her being, you know, the stalwart that she was for all that much longer. So I think that you need to start really looking long term, looking at who's going to partner Doll Kemper. Is are we going to see Tierna Davidson move back to the center? Are we going to see Julie, Julie Arch drop back, or is he going to, you know, look at look at players out there maybe in college or? I'm not sure I can name a center back off the top of my head from them doing so right now that I think could could jump in there. Um, yeah, it'd be tough. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe Barnes gets another look. Although I think you yeah. probably imagine she's at the end of or nearing the end or closer yeah, to the I, end. Obviously, I think I speak for a lot of people when I'd say I'd love to see Emily Mendez actually get a, a real look at the national team. Um, but uh, there is a, wind, a window, I think, that for when you can get called up and kind of make your case. And, and you see exceptions. You know, Allie Long, I think, was someone who. Back in, in 16, I would have thought the window had kind of passed her up, and then here she is, a World Cup champion. Um, but so, so I think Andy Sullivan's important 
you know, not just to take the place of Juilliard's, but in her own right, I think that she offers, she's not always, you know, doesn't have to play a six. I think she offers a lot as an eight. Um, and, and I think she's only going to get better from here. And, and, you know, everybody knows Blackco's great at development. I think that's one of his strongest features as a coach is taking the, the best knee bossers of the world and, and finding them and then building something out of them. And then to note on that, I, I hear she may feature in that December uh, identification camp where we're going to not see any of the veterans get called up. It's going to be new players, uh, but there are no games. It's just going to be a camp, um, which I haven't decided what I think about that yet quite. <laughs> I love it. I think this is great. Um, just, to, again, for him to really widen the pool, take a look, see if anybody stands out. Oh, yeah, um, no, no, no. I, I, the camp, I think, is great. Uh, if if Balser is included, which I guess we should wait until see if she actually is. Oh, okay. Um, I'm not. I think maybe we're jumping the gun a little bit, but it could be. You know, it's also a reward. I think there are players out there like, you know, I'll, I'll put myself out there. I think Aubrey Bledsoe had a fantastic season. I think she deserves all the accolades she's been getting. I think she deserves this call up. Do I see that she has it in her to take one of those two or three goalkeeper spots? I'm I'm not sure. I think she's kind of, in my opinion, maybe at her at her ceiling. I'm not sure she has it to go to that next level, but she should get rewarded for, for the effort that she's putting in into the end of her cell. And I think that's, that's what he's done. And, and obviously I don't see what goes on in camp, so I don't know where it's going to go from here. Yeah. And there's, there's so many different ways to look at this too, because there's, there are a lot of players that we see week in and week out in the end of ESL who look great at that level, but can't make that jump to the next level. And then sometimes there are players in the NWSL who maybe don't look great, but can bring their game up to another level if they need to. And really trying to determine which players can make that and which players can't is a huge part of his job because he's got to go out there. And again, this is, this is a unique situation because the Olympics are only eight months away. So, you know, he could, he could realistically, you know, pair the 20, three players from the World Cup down to 18, and boom, that's the roster. So I'm not expecting major changes. But then after the Olympics is where things get really interesting in terms of now you're looking at wholesale changes to the player pool. Um, and that's where he's going to have to make some big decisions. And that's where starting to look at some of these, you know, whether they're up-and-comers or traditionally second-tier players is going to make a big difference in how successful the team is, you know, can Kristen Hamilton become a national team player? Um, can Ashley Hatch take that next step in her career? Um, does Sofia Huerta move herself back into a position to play with this team? You know, there are maybe a dozen players like that who are fringe national team players or on the bubble or players who stand out in the league that he is going to want to take a look at at some point, whether that's over the next eight months or whether that's after the Olympics, that uh, is really going to determine how successful this team is over the next cycle. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think we could put together a really decent sort of a B team, for lack of yep. a better word, of those fringe players. I think there are enough out there. And that's, that's you know, like I said, I think that that's where Blackco shines, is identifying and developing those players. And so... We may not see it right away because he does have such a short time um, to work with the Siemens of the Olympics. But, yeah, I think it's, it's going to get very, very interesting. But, um, you know, so you mentioned, like, say, Ashley Hatch and then Kristen Hamilton. Anyone else 
in the league that you think is, is going to make an appearance on that December roster? Um, I don't should. know about December, but the one player, and this is I, – I think maybe I mentioned this before, but I am really curious to see if A-Rod gets another shot at the national team with the Olympics only eight months away. You know, she had a decent season. She's got a very long relationship with Andonovsky. Um The team is probably looking for a nine or a backup nine heading into the Olympics, you know, if Morgan doesn't come back. And that's kind of the one that I'm really curious uh, to see whether she gets another shot or not. Wouldn't that be interesting to have this camp? And you're going to assume most of them are going to be fairly young, um, limited to no appearances with the national team. And then you bring in this World Cup and Olympic yeah. Or maybe, yeah. you know, or maybe he does wait again, you know, until January, because I, I always like to see a really large January camp. I, I like to see that because it's because it's so long, um, because it does give them multiple opportunities to kind of look at these players. It's not just a, a three day camp, you know, one in the game. Um, I like to see a large camp and I, I'd love to see that again. But uh, I think for me and then. You know, maybe I'm not sure if he's if he plays against Costa Rica or if she's going to get called into December camp. But I thought that Amani Dorsey was a very interesting choice. Yeah, um, me too. Because you know she's not she's fairly new to the outside back position. At least in the NBL, you know she started up playing higher up the field, and then Sky Blue kind of switched her back. I'm not familiar with everything that she did in her youth days, so I, I could be wrong. But I didn't. I, I like what she brings in the offensive end of things. Didn't really see a whole lot from her that would make me say. This is someone I'd, I'd leave it outside back and, and much less call up to the national team. Um, so I don't know if he called her up because he wants to continue sort of that, I guess, experiment with her at outside back. Or if he sees something, you know, yeah, I'll call her up and we'll list her as a defender because that's what she plays in the league. But I'd really like to play her higher up the pitch. I just that to me was was probably the, one of the more interesting choices from this roster. It's like the Jill Ellis right back experiment that took 18 months to determine Allie Krieger was the backup. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. By the way, though, uh, just to throw it out there, Emily Fox had a moment in the first half of the ACC championship uh, today, and Emily Fox was, of course, one of the Jill Ellis right-back experiments. Um, had a, just a tremendous moment. I was even searching Twitter. I was hoping somebody would, would make a gif of it because it was such a terrific play where she dribbled around three players in the space of about five square yards. Um, so if anybody has that, uh, tag me on it and throw it out there. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the, look, this team, this roster in particular is remarkable because uh, all of the outside backs from the World Cup team were injured. Right, I mean Davidson was injured, well, Krieger was Sonnet injured. Was, I, I suppose it was yes. an outside back for the, okay, um, but Dunn under, was under, injured, under, O'Hara was injured. <laughs> right, right, but four defenders who play or played outside back uh, from the World Cup roster were hurt for this for this set of games, which is remarkable, and it does show that you are going to need to start again looking at that that pool particularly and uh, determining, you know, because look, Krieger might not be a part of the team going forward. We don't know that Uh, O'Hara has had so many persistent. Well, maybe I shouldn't say so many injury problems, but the same injury problem that has been persistent, you know, it just seems like she has a chronically bad ankle and whether she makes it back again um, is a question. We know that Dunn was unhappy 
with playing outside back and Davidson might be the center back. So you've really got to start bringing in those players and looking at whether that's Dorsey, as you mentioned, or Midge Purse, who at one point was one of the in the right back pool or Huerta, as we mentioned, or Fox or whomever that is, they've got to start looking at some outside backs again, because that's going to be one of those areas that they're going to need to, to find some depth in for the future. Yeah, and, and for me, you know, obviously Vlatko's familiar with the league. I don't know how much attention he's paid in in the past to the college game. So for me, right. it would be really interesting to kind of see where where he gets from there. Because, again, I, I think Emily Fox is one that you would probably, uh, depending on what North Carolina is doing at the time, um, maybe bring back into that December camp. I've seen her a couple times with North Carolina this year. She's having a very strong season. I like a lot of, of what she brings, and um, she's an actual outside back. So that's yeah. nice. I haven't seen right. any of those lately. Um, I, I've, I've never, you know, been shy about saying that I didn't really like the the focus on trying to, to transition a player into that role, and I think you have plenty out there that that can handle both sides of it just just fine. Um, but there, there, I could name several other college players who I think should should probably start getting some attention, um, whether they're still in college or they're going to be entering the draft hopefully next season or or going to Europe for that matter. Um, and, and, you know, I mentioned this in the last pod I was on. I want to see kind of what, what Haley Mace has been up to. I liked, yeah. I liked her a lot. I don't – haven't been able to, to see what she's been doing in in Europe, but I would like to, to kind of check in if she's had a strong season. I think she's someone else that you start grooming again for the future because I think she, she offers something – you know, could offer something to this team. But um, anyone else uh, from from this roster that – you want to talk about or anyone that you think should have been on this roster or will be on the next one. Um, we didn't see Alana Cook uh, dress against Sweden. She may or may not dress or play against Costa Rica. Again, we're recording before that game. I thought she was an interesting call-up coming on the heels of her, her England call-up. So um, just kind of see where, where they go from, from there. Again, someone I liked a lot in college, haven't been able to see what she's been doing in Europe. Um it's kind of it for me. And Midge Purse, I like that she got called up, but she's one I, I think can probably bring it to the next level. I don't think I'd play her at right back if it were up to me. Um, but, uh, yeah. What do you, any, any last thoughts on this, Sean? Uh, no, I think, uh, I think we covered. All right. Well, that that's wraps up uh, session two of the podcast. We'll come back. We'll, we'll dive into some questions. Welcome back to the Equalizer Podcast. It is time for your questions. Remember to use hashtag E2ZPod anytime, and we will do our best to include it on the next podcast. So um, I don't know how to pronounce this name. I'm going to be honest with you. It's A-U-D-G, um, and I'm not sure how to pronounce the username anyway. So you got a really cute cat for your uh, little icon there, buddy. Anyway, um <laughs> Whoever you may be, thought I saw that part of Kerr's decision to go to Europe was schedule. Would it benefit the NWSL to switch to the European schedule? Is the goal of the NWSL to be the best league in the world? Wow, we got a we got a, a big one. Um, can I can I please answer that one? By all means, John. I would like anybody to go look at my Twitter feed on the picture I took on Monday, the day after the NWSL championship game at the amount of snowfall there was coming down and on the ground in Chicago and tell me that we should go to a European schedule because 
It was, I think, on Thursday, it was 18 degrees here. We've already had our first major snowfall. It, this, you know, <laughs> listen, I'm not going to gain myself any favor among Chicago people, but this place is an absolute hellscape in the winter. And to think that we could have any sort of European type <laughs> schedule is, is absolutely insane. Um, yeah, I think work. unless the, the, the teams want to invest in indoor, um, right. you know, indoor little soccer arenas and, and make it indoor soccer, that that's, that's not going to work. And you have to remember, too, that um, in Europe, a lot of places like Sweden and Norway, they, they also sort of play a similar schedule because of the same reason. I think they're it, – right. it's, it's an, you know, also, and you look at – I mean, Sky Blue obviously is moving on, but up until now they played on a college field. Well, Rutgers needs that for their soccer. So switching to a winter schedule would, would be difficult for a number of reasons. Um, as for the second question, I'm sure the goal is to be – well, okay. I'm sure the NWSL doesn't actually have a goal because that just, to me, asks them to have too much. But I'm sure if you asked anyone in the NWSL, they would tell you that the goal, of course, is to be the best league in the world. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's certainly the most competitive league, right? Would anybody doubt that? Seriously, I mean the 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 French league, the the Spanish league, the German league even are not um, very competitive. Like other than I mean, one I, or would two you teams. Say that, though, over the last couple of years, I would. Well, the French, other than Lyon well, the, and PSG, like the, the French, French maybe yeah. maybe they're the worst example or the best example in that. There's just no denying that that's a non-competitive league. But I don't think um, we've, we're at a point now where we can say, well, any team, you know, I think we've definitely seen the end of itself sort of separate into. Yeah. Haves and, and haves nots. Yeah. Maybe, but wouldn't you say, well, let me ask you. So if, so if you looked at this season, you, you'd obviously take your four playoff teams. You'd say those are halves, but isn't, isn't Utah in that conversation? I think, I think Utah's in that conversation. I think Washington is moving. Exactly. That, so you're at least at six, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's not, I think in the early days, you know, parity was, was the big, big thing. And I'm not, you know, yes, right. Sky Blue can beat North Carolina. Um, you know, Houston can hold them to, to a 1-0 on a, on a, you know, controversial penalty. These results happen, but in the long run. Um, and I think, I guess, yeah, I mean. I don't know. I don't think it's as as varied as it as it used to be. Where pretty much any it was kind of a toss up as to who was really gonna gonna win it down the stretch. Um, but I will say the England's league I think is is probably the next I would say as far as as being competitive. I think they do a pretty good job. You've yeah. You you still got the haves and have nots, but I think they do a better job. I mean, the French league is is a joke, frankly. Lyon, PSG, and maybe Montpellier every once in a while wins the game. Yeah, I mean, I just keep looking at PSG's recent results: four nothing, five nothing, and that's not even taking a look at Lyon, which I'm sure is is even more lopsided. Yeah, yeah those are. Uh, I, th- I think I want to say that the Spain's league is kind of the same way. You, you kind of have the, of course, Madrid's coming along to see if they can wedge themselves into that. They sure are, are buying the players to do so. Um. All right, so Diane Hansen. Um, not really a question, but since she tagged us, she said just listen to the Equal Z pod. And if Reinhardt wooing Coach Gallimore of Washington Huskies is next coach for shame, timing couldn't be better. Um, I agree, Diane Hansen. I think that would be great. Thank you for giving us the uh, the shout-out there. 
um, Carrie Poroleski. Um, and Carrie, you, you come on often enough that if we're screwing up your name, you, you need to like DM one of us and then let us know. Um, thank you constantly for your questions. Um, we really appreciate it. Do you think U.S. Women's National Team might go play in Japan prior to Olympics to get a feel for distance culture? I don't think they're going to go all the way to Japan, but I would love to see them go somewhere. I doubt it. John? Yeah, I mean, maybe. I mean, they went to France to start the year off, and, uh, you know, shout out to everybody who thought that that loss to France to start off the year was the, you know, the house on fire. <laughs> Because they've only won 22 games. The rule there. is, John, the rule is now that we have to lose the first game of the World Cup year. Yeah, I, it's just, I, I don't know. Preferably I'm still, in France. I'm just still a little irked at people's reactions to that game because why on earth, if you were Jill Ellis, would you try to win that game? Like, there's no reason. You want to lose mean, that game. And you could argue that she purposely lost it when you go back and look at that lineup that she fielded. Yeah, I don't know if she purposely – I don't think – even if she tried, I don't think you'd get the players to purposely lose. I think it was more they just played like shit and nobody yeah. wants to see that. But, yeah, if, if they don't have a game against, in France against France scheduled for 2023, they're doing it wrong. Um, we, we set the tone. <laughs> All right. Um, Melanie J. Marks says, when are the captains named? The start of the year once they know who's allocated, question mark. Wondering who gets the armband while Alex Morgan is out. Um, I don't really know when or how or. They they switch all the time because I remember being in Utah in the summer of 2018 and we were told just kind of like out of the blue that they had switched to like a triumvirate of captains. Yeah. So, you know, after it was kind of clear that, that Christine Rapone was done, they they made a big deal out of saying that Carly and and Carly Lloyd and Becky Sauerbrunn were going to be the captains, and then Carly would wear the armband if she was the one on the field because the one who had more caps. And then, yeah, at some point in 2018, they just kind of, Becky Sauerbrunn just sort of quietly stopped wearing it. Yeah. And it's been Morgan, Rapino, or Lloyd, so I would assume. And I think out of those, it's usually Lloyd or Rapino. If Lloyd's on the pitch, I think she's the one wearing it. Yeah, if and not, I think I want to say it's more often Rapino than Morgan. Yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised if if Vlaco goes with a similar thing because you've got such a strong core of of veterans, whether it's Lloyd or Pino, or even going back to using Barone as a captain. You know, you she, these are players that you're almost going to write into the starting eleven in a permanent marker. So, yeah, um, and I mean. You know, listen, some players care more about this sort of stuff than others. Right. So I'm sure that he, he knows or he's going to learn who that matters to. And if that's if that's what you need to get someone to perform well for you, by all means, let them wear it. I, and I think I, – um, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I, I don't – never got the impression that Becky Sauerbrunn was too – if right. she was disappointed, she hit it very well. never affected her performance. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, going forward, Ertz would be an interesting choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I – you know, I heard, and I'll give credit, Jonathan Tannerwald said this in France, which knocked me back when he said it because I, I had never thought of it, and I thought how right he was. Is We were talking to Sam Mewis, and I was just remarking on how incredible her answers were to the questions we were asking, and he said, that's a future captain of the U.S., and I thought, that's a good call because she absolutely could be captain of this team. Yeah, yeah, I, I could see that. Um 
I mean, Lloyd, at least, I would say, and probably Rapino is, is maybe the, the Olympics would be their, their sort of their last hurrah. Yeah. So I think we'll see some changes with that anyway. Um, Michael Phillips says, I've read Sky Blue's rights to Haley Mason, Julia Ashley, expired at the end of the 2019 NBSL season, correct? What NWSL teams might try to sign them? Both should get called to the women's national team. Agree? Mason's good on defense and offense. Women's, women's national team could use it both ways. Your thoughts on both players? I have I have said my thoughts on Haley Mace <laughs> without being prompted because I'm just that good. Julia Ashley, I'm not. I have to kind of reach back into my memory. I'm not sure I remember thinking of her as a future national teamer. She definitely has the physical gifts. Um, she hasn't really played much in the last year. I mean, you got to think like the last time she was playing consistently was November, December of 2018. Um, she went over to Europe. She had a little bit of a knee injury. She had a concussion. Um, she came home early and then, uh, she just signed with Adelaide in the W League. So I think this is an opportunity for her to kind of get things back on track. Mm-hmm. And if she's not already talking to NWSL coaches, if she wants to come back, um, could could get her name in that conversation. Yeah, I think anybody would be lucky to have her. I mean, why yeah. not? You pick her up for free, essentially, too. doesn't cost yeah, you anything. Doesn't, yeah, because and, and to answer Michael's initial question, um, unless the rules have changed again, yeah, they, Sky Blue no longer has the rights to either of those players. When you, when you draft a, a player, you, you get their rights for that season, and that's it. So... No, no trading. They are they're discovery players at this point. I, I, I think we'll see one, if not both, back in the Nabucel this season. Um, that's kind oh, of for sure. It, my ear yeah. to the ground, kind of my hunch. Yep. Um, and then if they go into the national team from there, we, you know, we'll we'll kind of see. But yeah, I'd forgotten about about actually going to the W League, and that'll be a really good way to. The W League is, is not as competitive as as the Nabucel, in, in the sense that um, it's just not as strong of a league. It's not a great way to say who's going to be, um, you know, a barnstormer in this league, but it gives you an idea of what somebody can do. So, all right. Well, that's it for our questions. Um, John, any any last thoughts on Blackco's debut for the U.S.? No, I think he's probably taken the right approach, which is, uh, you know, very, very slow changes, which is going to have the, you know, least uh, amount of pushback at this point he's got a good team he's got eight months you don't really need to change a lot you can you can put your stamp on it while still keeping most of the team together and most of the concepts the same and um and then also you know as you mentioned you don't have to go through the what seems to be the rite of passage which is the players revolting against you (laughs) yeah yeah let's uh let's avoid that um, yeah. So far, I think the players seem pretty pretty excited about him. Both uh, Ali Krieger and Carly Lloyd have mentioned um, that, that they saw a lot of smiles. That, that things felt a little refreshing. So, for right now, everyone seems to be on board. So I think it's up to him to sort of sort of maintain that. It's it's definitely a, a challenge. I don't envy having to not rock the boat, but also change the boat if you need to. Yeah, the toughest best job in the world. Uh for sure, for sure. Um. But anyway, thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, I'm Chelsea Bush. With me was John Halloran. Thanks, as always, for listening to, to the Equalizer podcast, and we'll see you next time. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters, the more your network matters. 
The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Rootmetrics second half 2020 U.S. reported three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.